All right. My apologies for being a little late this morning. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, we are in chapter 11, which of course chapters 10 and 11 take place between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, or between the second and the third of the great woes. So we have this interlude once again about the church. This imagery, a little bit stranger than the previous interlude, which was about the church. You saw the church militant on earth and the church in heaven surrounded, uh, surrounding the heavenly throne, the one who sits upon it and the lamb, who is also their shepherd. And here you see a more rubber-hits-the-road version of the church, and that is the ministry of the church in the midst of the plagues that God is sending, the trumpets that he is blowing in order to conquer this world, this Jericho, and usher into the new heavens and the new earth, the promised land, you see. So we have these motifs going on and intermingled, stacked one upon the other, as is John's specialty. Zooming entirely out, of course, you have this angel who is, uh, has dominion over the earth and the sea, very important as we get to chapter 13 in the beast. He has a scroll in his hand. He gives that scroll to John. John eats that scroll. It's sweet in his mouth. It's bitter in his stomach. And then from that, he speaks uh, concerning and unto the many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Then arise in kind of this dream logic where it doesn't make sense straight logic, but in terms of imagery and theme, it makes sense. We transition into the measuring of the temple, the, really the climactic picture of Ezekiel. The new temple has come, and the twofold witness. In terms of Ezekiel, in that context, you have these two figures emerge, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Of course, when the temple had been destroyed, you've got this really practical question of however is it to be, once it's, once it's raised, once it's resurrected, so to speak, rebuilt, how, however do you sanctify it? And so Zechariah speaks to this, Zerubbabel, the Davidic line, the left-hand kingdom in Lutheran parlance, and Joshua, the right-hand kingdom uh, in Lutheran parlance, the priestly element. These are the two witnesses in that context. But as we also see, and as I mentioned, you have the trumpets, you have the entering into uh, the promised land, so you also have remnants of... uh, Moses, who led them right up to the doorstop, and Elijah, who are there, in, uh, and Elijah the great prophet, both of whom sort of merge into this imagery in chapter 11, very complex imagery. So that if you remind yourself, refresh your memory by going to chapter 11, verse 4, and we spent some time in Zechariah getting the biblical background, but you have these two witnesses that Revelation says, and as you dig deeper, you have two olive trees, You have two lampstands. You have Zerubbabel and Joshua. 
based on the description that comes, look at the description in verse 6. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That's Elijah. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as, the, as often as they desire. That's Moses. And of course, that brings to mind the transfiguration. Those two are on the Mount of Transfiguration. So you can see how John is just stacking layer upon layer upon layer of theological meaning. This is the way he is, he is showing the twofold uh, witness required by the scripture for any testimony to be true. And that witness is born throughout the world. And those who bear this witness are themselves martyred, raised, they're and they're ascended, they're brought into heaven. In other words, as it goes for Christ, so it goes for these two witnesses. Or as it goes for Christ, so it goes for his church. So what can we, what can we gather from this? Again, when we consider that one of John's major motifs or major points is that we interpret our surroundings theologically apocalyptically. There his point would be to have us as Christians see ourselves as a whole unit, namely the church, and see that as it goes for Christ, so it's going to go for us. While there may be times of popularity and times of earthly prosperity, as Jesus, even Jesus himself experienced in his ministry, the vast majority of it is going to be colored by rejection by defeat, by suffering, by scorn, when the witnesses are put to death. You remember what the, uh, you remember what the, the people of the world do? Verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's an anti-Christmas. <laughs> so then this allows us to identify our, ourselves within this narrative and within this lens so that as it goes poorly for the church, we don't have this inner crisis. God must hate us. He must not be remembering us. Or uh, maybe, maybe God is paying me what I deserve. Uh, maybe, maybe somehow I've been unfaithful and thus I've been cast out of God's grace. That, that kind of thing might enter our minds. And here we are told in no uncertain terms, look, no, this is not God's punishment. This is how it goes for the people of God. And the great honor of this calling is as it went for you, so it went for Jesus. I mean, what, what higher honor could there be in all the cosmos than to participate in and be molded and melded into the image of the Son of God himself? There could be no higher honor. If it wasn't given in the scriptures and someone asserted it, it would be the height of blasphemy. So this then, we, in this then, we see a picture of who we are as church, and we see that even though we lose in the end, we win. So simply to pick up a verse or two roughly before we let, where we left off, verse 13, and at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Uh, this is a tithe, and we're told seven thousand people were killed in an earthquake. This seems to be a reversal of one of the one of the major points in Elijah's life 
Do you remember where, the, where he's told, I'm the last one, I'm the only remaining one who is faithful in all of Israel, and God tells him, no, there are still 7,000 others who have not bent the knee. So this seems to be a reversal of that theme where there are 7,000 who are killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven, which is a fascinating line and a very controversial line. As, as uh, Baucom says, this is neither literal nor allegory. I think, you know, what are the different options you have in terms of this line? Well, you can't, you can't have it teaching universalism contrary to the rest of the scriptures, contrary to the logic and theology of Revelation itself. It's not a self-contradictory book. So what do you have here? You either have sort of a false recognition of God or a temporary recognition of God on the part of the, of the wicked world. Um, or your other option, and I think that this is the preferred option, is you take this whole thing as a poetic, apocalyptic, prophetic sort of vision where what's excluded here are the wicked people of the world and this is trying to give us a final vision of all the heavens and all the earth rejoicing in the Lord. Namely, I mean, if you want to be technical about it, because those who have rejected the Lord are excluded by this time. Okay, and then we are told in verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Whereas with the seventh seal, we were ushered into the next set of seven, the seven trumpets. Here at the seventh trumpet, we frankly have a depiction of the end of the world. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. This takes us back to the throne room of God. Let's not forget that. That's where the angels are standing around the altar, and continuously throughout the blaring of the seven angels, each angel blowing his horn, the eighth angel in the middle has been pouring out uh, the hot coals from the altar of incense down upon the earth. And that bowl empties itself as this seventh angel blares his trumpet. So again, not to be pedantic about it, but our attention is drawn back to the throne room of God with even just a small signal like this. Everything is going is leading us up to the throne of God and then back down to the earth and then up to the throne of God and so on. The throne of God is the hub of all of Revelation. All right, so the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So this is an interesting and not well-known facet of biblical theology and thus also reality, that in some way, shape, or form, the devil has a legal claim on this world as, as the accuser, that's as Satan, as the formal prosecuting attorney. He got us to fall into sin. Once we're into sin, he prosecutes us, and he claims us as his own. They obeyed my voice in the garden, not yours. Thus he's called the God of this world, and he has a legal claim to sinners, a just claim to sinners. 
So what has transpired on account of the crucifixion of Jesus and the coronation of Jesus, remember that takes us back to the earliest throne room scenes where uh, it is simply the, the one seated upon the throne and the Spirit of God and there's no one, this is chapter 5, there's no one who can open the scroll and then Jesus appears, the Lamb uh, who stands and yet looks as one having been slain. So the crucified one is the only one who's fit to open the scroll. The crucified one is coronated, takes his seat upon the throne of God with God. And thus, thus the logic here in chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom that belongs to Satan, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, Father and Son. And he shall reign forever and ever. Do you remember the temptation of, uh, that Satan used, one of the three in the wilderness with Christ? Bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kings of the world, all the kingdoms of the world, excuse me. So, and, you know, fascinatingly, I wouldn't read too much into this, but fascinatingly, Jesus doesn't contradict him on that point. He doesn't say the world belongs to God who made it. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the kingdoms of the world have to be snatched out of Satan's hand, and that's precisely what he does on the cross, because the reign of Satan is based on man's sin and on man's listening to the devil. So in becoming incarnate, in removing our sins, he removes the devil's claim. And in giving a voice that it doesn't negate, it simply trumps the rightful accusation of Satan against us on account of our sins. The, the blood of Christ and the word of Christ says, yes, but those sins are atoned for. There's no more debt. Nothing else is owed. You have no claim. And so it is, it is very concretely the cross of Jesus, then, that wrestles the world out of the grasp of Satan, such that only those who will go to hell in, in finality are those who once again commit an original sin, as it were, and reject Christ, who once again turn to Satan and say, I prefer him and his reign. That's why uh, Christ himself says that, that hell and everlasting darkness were prepared, he doesn't say for people, but for the devil and his angels. That's it. It was always God's plan to snatch the human race entirely out of Satan's hands, which he has done in Christ Jesus. And now only those go to hell who choose to go to hell effectively. All right. So we can hardly make too much of this. Because in this one line, we have the present tense and future reality. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, again, I'll simply remind you, our attention is drawn up to the throne room and to the ongoing, everlasting, eternal liturgy that in reality is taking place right now in heaven. 
Our loved ones who depart to be with the Lord are taking part in this cosmic liturgy. When we join on Sunday morning and gather around Christ and the Eucharist and Christ and His Word, we are joining in this cosmic liturgy. So these 24 elders are worshiping God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. You see already there, there's a sense in which he was not reigning previously. His reign had been broken. Now he has taken his great power and begun to reign. Verse 18, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So, this final trumpet, this final woe that we've been building up to, you remember the first woe, the fifth trumpet, it's all these demonic hordes. The the second woe, the sixth trumpet, again, demonic hellish armies. And we're told that this final woe, this is the final woe, the third great woe, the seventh trumpet, and as it blows, how woeful is it to you? And that's that's the beauty and the surprise of this seventh trumpet. It is absolute woe, absolute unequivocal woe to the devil and those who have sided with him. You couldn't get a worse woe. But for for us who are Christians, this is the song of victory. This is the victory of the Lamb. (laughs) It couldn't look better. And and, and so I I love this line. Um, The nations raged, that is, the whole world fought against you. Is that not true, that the whole world fights against Christ and his church? The whole world has fought against you. The nations raged, but your wrath came, your righteous anger came, and the time for the dead to be judged. So if the dead are to be judged, there's a resurrection, not explicit here. And for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, which we find ourselves there, and those who fear your name, both great and small. Such a beautiful picture, such a beautiful picture that God forgets not even the small. And how very, very differently God defines the great and the small from the way the world defines the great and the small. I think maybe, maybe year one in heaven will be a history class. History 101, as God saw the world. And all the names that we learned in our history class will somehow not be there. And the narrative that we all learned and were taught was of the utmost importance and the story of our civilization. That'll have to all be rewritten. And what you'll see instead there is the person and work of Christ in and through his people orchestrating the salvation of the world and the will of God present and eternally. So great and small are gathered. And then here's the, here's the line that I was getting to that I absolutely love. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. For destroying the destroyers of the earth. The judgment of the wicked. You know, we've kind of... Uh, in some sectors of Christianity, devolved into sort of a a namby-pamby, 
you know, eh, everyone, let's just love each other kind of thing, you know. Um, revelation is sobering. It is an antidote to that <laughs> namby-pambyizing of Christianity that we've so sadly undergone. Because we are, as we'll see, the saints rejoice at the casting out of the wicked. We celebrate when our God comes and destroys the destroyers of the earth. And that language, of course, harkens back to um, Abaddon and Apollyon, that figure who comes out of the abyss, uh, who, is, who is called um, the destroyer. And so the destroyers of the earth are obviously those of his kind. Probably evil spirits mostly in view here, um, but certainly I don't see why it would, that would necessarily preclude uh, people, too, who are destroyers of the earth. Um, so if you go back to chapter 9, verse 11, you can see the, the thematic play going on. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. And if you follow the ESV study note over, Abaddon means destruction. Apollyon means destroyer. So now then you can see the language and theme brought to a conclusion in chapter 11, verse 18. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth, Abaddon, Apollyon, and all who have been made into his image and likeness. As it goes for him, so it goes for them. And that, by the way, when we get to, when we get to the idea of 666 and the, the sign and mark of the beast, uh, we'll refer back to some of these themes as long as I can remember. Um, because what you actually have here going on is two different gods, two different images. The god of Apollyon, the destroyer, and to be in his image is to be a destroyer. I suppose we would, we would sort of change that language and put consumer. <laughs> That's it. You're just a self-serving vacuum. That's a, that's a way of being a destroyer. And we're going to see that then that is a, a mark, an image. It's an identity. And the only other mark, image, and identity is that which you receive in baptism. To not be a destroyer but to be a, and, and a taker, but to be a giver, as Christ is a giver, one who gives life rather than takes life. Okay. Now... Wrapping up chapter 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. This loops us back again poetically and uh, rather beautifully to the beginning of chapter 11 where John is told to rise and measure the temple. Verse 19, we have the opening of the temple. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, which I like to think of as the firework finale at the end of the world. <laughs> That's the end of the age, as depicted in the vision of the seventh trumpet. Now, why do we see the Ark of the Covenant show up here? Well, because we had the seven trumpets blaring and because that takes us back to the seven trumpets uh, led by Joshua 
And you remember, behind the seven trumpets was the Ark of the Covenant, and the gate to the promised land, the gateway city, the fortified city that no one could get past, no one could defeat, was Jericho. You had to get, Jericho was like a door to the entire promised land. You had to get by Jericho in order to get into the promised land. So as God instructs and as they, they blow their trumpets and give a shout and follow his command, the walls come down and the new heavens and the new earth open, the, the paradise of God opens. So we're taking that Old Testament motif and type and we're seeing its ultimate fulfillment as the angel blows his seventh trumpet, uh, Jericho, which in this case is Satan and all his powers, are conquered and the ark of God and God's people enter into the promised land, which concretely speaking, as we'll see in Revelation 21, is the new heavens and the new earth. So that ties us in then with our biblical theme. And of course, that conquest of the promised land is but the extension and the finale of what was begun in the Exodus. And so thus you see that you know, where we started all the way back with the, with the trumpets, you remember the first four trumpets in specific were all related to the uh, plagues, remniscent of those plagues that God put upon Egypt to set his people So now into the promised land. So now we see the climax of those plagues, what began with the original trumpets, climactically coming to bear as God's people, led by the ark, enter the new heavens and the new earth, the true promised land. Now, we know that Christ is the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of God's people where the blood was poured so that God would have mercy on us. I mean, this shows that the prophets and saints are forgiven sinners. And it's very tempting to see also this uh, Ark of the Covenant as further reference to Christ. It may well be. You have that kind of language in uh, John's epistle, and of course it's John writing this. Uh, the language of the hilasterion, the mercy seat. You have Paul take up that language in Romans 2 in almost direct reference to Christ. So it's tempting here to see Christ uh, as, as also the Ark of the Covenant coming in. All right, now that brings us, I mean, what's fascinating to us just following the structure of Revelation so far is that we haven't been immediately introduced into the third and final set of seven the censor bowls and the, the pouring out of the censor bowls. Why not? Because there's this great big interlude or interregnum, as uh, Brighton calls it. And this interregnum, if you, if you kind of glance at chapter 12 in the heading, it's the woman and the dragon, which is one of uh, my absolute most favorite parts of all of Revelation the woman and the dragon, and then you're introduced chapter 13. You see the first beast? That's the first half of 13. Second half of 13 is the second beast. Then you have the lamb and the 144,000, followed by the messages of the three angels, the harvest of the earth, and then you have the seven angels with the seven plagues, followed by the seven bowls of God's wrath. And now we're back into our cycle of seven, our third cycle of seven with the, uh, the seven bowls of God's wrath. Okay? So let me, uh, let me allow Brighton a word on this, what he calls an interregnum, that is a pause. So chapters 12 through 14 serve as an interregnum, that is a pause between 
the second and the third sevenfold visions of events taking place. During this pause, opposing forces vie to rule. This break between the second and third earthly visions is more than an interlude, such as the interlude that appeared between the sixth and seventh seals and the first sevenfold vision, and the one that transpired between the sixth and seventh trumpet angels of the second sevenfold vision. For in this break between the second and third visions, there is a lengthy pause or cessation by which the normal flow of the visionary prophecy in Revelation concerning events on earth is interrupted. The portrayal of events on earth is suspended in order to permit John to see a cosmic vision expounding events that overarc what he has been seeing happening on earth. What John views in Revelation 12 through 14 dominates and controls the events that he sees taking place on earth. That is, these chapters visually explain to John why the events on earth are occurring. Okay. So, once again, just to, just to summarize the ordering of Revelation... You've got the preliminary material, the seven epistles to the seven churches. And before that, you have a revelation of Christ, everything taking place on earth. After the sevenfold epistles, John is taken up into heaven. He sees the throne room. As we went through the seals, we got, you know, you see the ascension of Christ into the throne room. He grabs hold of the scroll at the right hand of the Father. He begins to open the seals. As he opens the seals, things progress right up until the end of the world. You see? So what is the timeline we're talking about? We're talking about from the ascension of Christ to the end of the world. That's the time frame Revelation is covering. Now, as we got to that seventh seal, we go back to the first trumpet. It opens way to the first trumpet. And as we've marched through the trumpets and all the way to the seventh, what do we see now? Again, the ascension of Jesus to the end of the world. And the end of the world, he takes his reign, all the destroyers are destroyed, etc. And everything's great. We, I mean, you, you might assume that everything's wrapped up enough to just end the text. But what we're going to do now with this pause and interregnum is we're going to cover that same period of history again. Effectively, the Christ event from his incarnation on to the end of the age. That's what the interregnum or pause, that's what chapters 12 through 14 are going to be about. Then we're going to see the final, the censor angels cover the same point, climaxing at the close of the age. And then, finally, we'll, we will be ushered into the end of the book and the fulfillment of everything we, that's been hinted at in, to some degree, the seventh seal. Yes, to, to a large degree in the seventh trumpet, the end of this large interregnum, um, which sort of forms a fourth part, if you're thinking just in terms of size. And then the seventh censor being dumped out. And then Revelation opens up into what the final victory of God looks like. Okay, why rehash that and rehearse that? Because Revelation's not all that chronologically complex. 
nor is it designed such that anyone can specify and say, okay, here's where we're at. We're between trumpet four and trumpet five, and, you know, based on revelation, we can tell that we're about halfway through. You can't do anything like that. You can't do anything like that. So the, the attempts to read revelation that are very widespread in evangelicalism in such a way that you could somehow tell where we are as simply not possible. Not possible according to how revelation itself is written and how it understands itself. Only in broadest, broadest sort of ways can you say, okay, well, we're obviously, we've seen all of this. <laughs> or we've seen sufficient enough of this that Christ could return. Another fascinating element of this, by the way, is if you read St. Paul's, uh, just, just those verses, you'd have to do a little Bible search, but look at St. Paul's view of the eschaton and when Christ is coming. And ask St. Paul, as it were, what things still need to happen in order for Christ to come. Your answer from St. Paul would be, nothing. It's all sufficient. Everything we've already seen is sufficient. The next thing we're waiting for is the archangel shout, the blast of the trumpet, and the descent of the Lord and the ascent of his people. And that could happen any moment. So much so that he can even speak to that first century generation and say, hey, those of us who have died, they're going to come with the Lord. Those of us who don't die, our bodies are going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. So we have to read those two things in harmony that Revelation, you know, has effectively been fulfilled many, many, many times over. The only thing that hasn't is the very, very last, which only God knows. And again, we'll get into this in a little detail when we talk about the loosing of Satan. But the loosing of Satan and the deceptive nature of Satan is such, so is also this picture of the disintegrating church, which, by the way, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a visible Christendom. That is, with true believers on earth who know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him for their salvation are baptized. Um, this diminishment is such that, again, it could have been in the first century or the 10th or the 15th or the 20th or this century or a thousand years from now. It's quite sufficient to be fulfilled. And in the generation in which Satan is loosed, in the generation in which Christ returns, it's not like someone's going to be able to open up Revelation and say, this is definitively it. It's happening in the next decade. There's no way to do that. This is definitively it. It's happening in the next hundred years. There's no way to do that. The best you can say is the signs that we are seeing right now are the signs of Revelation. We know what those signs in Revelation are meant and intended to do. That is to lead us to repentance as Christians and also to lift up our heads, to take heart, because these signs mean and indicate that our redemption is drawing near, that our Lord Jesus is drawing near. So that, again, flips our eschatological lenses that we're, that we're seeing through so that, in effect, the more we see these signs, the more we ought to rejoice and be fearless. The more we ought to be emboldened and say, this is exactly as our Lord said it would be. All of these things are in his hand. These are all working for his good purposes. And 
the end is surely near, whether that's my end or my country's end or the end of Western civilization or the end of the world. Whatever it may be, wonderful. When my Lord Jesus comes, he will destroy the destroyers and everything will be set right and he will have mercy on his people. So that's the point. I am sorry to sermonize or belabor that, but every so often we've just got to refresh ourselves with these themes lest we uh, miss out on the most fundamental aspects of Revelation. All right, let's jump a little ways into this interregnum or pause, and it's a lengthy one. Much When people think of Revelation, much of the imagery they gain from these chapters. Chapter 12, verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. All right, let's pause there and simply take a look at the major themes. We have two different signs, and these signs are taking place in heaven. The first sign is the sign of a woman, and she gives birth to a child. Who's this woman? All the Lutherans are afraid to say it's Mary. <laughs> yeah, it is Mary, but more than Mary. It is Mary, but more than Mary. It is, if you will, it is, it is Mary embodying the capital C church, God's people, and that expanding through both testaments. So that God's people, the entire Old Testament people, could be seen here just as easily as Mary and the coming forth, the giving birth of Christ. You could see the entire Old Testament, if you will, as labor pains and birth pangs. Okay. Now, to see this, uh, there's, again, there's nothing wrong with seeing this as Mary. And in fact, I, I mean, as long as you see it as kind of a type and icon of the larger reality here, uh, this is... This is really, really beautiful, of course, because John is the only one of the twelve to be at the foot of the cross when Jesus is crucified. And they're standing next to him, Mary, the mother of God. And you remember our Lord's words to him, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And those words are far too rich and too complex for us to be able to get into the fullness of right now. 
but to simply say nothing more, from that moment, John becomes as a son to her and takes her into his, into his home. It takes her as his own, might be actually more reflective of the Greek there, which in and of itself is fascinating. So, Mary is with John, and when it comes time for John to have this revelation, and the woman who gives birth to the child... I mean, how remarkable to be picturing this same Mary with whom he stood at the foot of the cross, whom he brought into his home, etc. All right, so she is described as being clothed with the sun. Where have we seen that imagery before? Christ being clothed in the sun at the very beginning. So she shares the glory of Christ. She has the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars, obviously represent, you know, 12 representative of, of God's people. Okay, she is uh, suffering. She is suffering, pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. That's sign number one. Now, that's Christmas. So, as strange as it might be to say, Merry Christmas from Revelation. This is, this is the imagery that Revelation uses. You know, if you were to, at the very beginning, you know, 40 years ago when we began Revelation, we were all younger and more beautiful, we, uh, we took a look at Revelation understood as the fifth gospel. If you take the four gospels as this is Christ's ministry on earth, and you took Revelation as this is his ongoing ministry in heaven. This is what the personal work of Christ looks like until the end of the age. If you take Revelation in that way, um, then, then there's this, this beautiful, beautiful sense in which the Christmas story, the nativity story of this gospel is right here. Is right here. All right, the second sign is verse 3. And this is a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Let me see if I can grab you Brighton's take on the, the color and the horns. Another sign, Brighton says, appeared in heaven, a great red dragon. As in the case of the woman with, with child, the fact that this other appearance is designated as a sign points out that what it pictures is important, yet not as important as the great sign in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, of the woman. The sign of the dragon also appears in heaven, thus indicating that what it depicts is above the earth, though it will greatly influence what happens on the earth too. The dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and upon his heads seven diadems. The seven heads are similar to the seven horns and the seven eyes of the Lamb in chapter 5, verse 6. The number seven is God's number, in particular, symbolizing the sevenfold presence of Yahweh through His Spirit. The fact that the Lamb in Revelation 5 has seven horns and seven eyes signifies that the exalted Christ is all-powerful and all-knowing, the horns and the eyes, respectively, and that he exercises his power and authority by the Spirit. 
In the Old Testament, the horn symbolized power on earth and the authority to exercise it. Similarly, the seven eyes refer to the Lord Christ's omniscience, which also he exercised throughout the sevenfold presence of, uh, through the sevenfold presence of the Holy Spirit. The dragon's seven heads reflect his deceptive claim that he, and not the Christ, is the spirit who has all knowledge to supervise all earthly matters. Each head is crowned with a diadem, reflecting his deceptive claim that he possesses all royalty and lordship. The ten horns point to the boastful claim that the dragon has supreme earthly power. The number ten means that while other earthly powers exist, the dragon has dominating power and authority to exercise it. He is the color red, which is the color of murder and bloodshed of both a spiritual and physical nature. All right, so let's recap then what Brighton has to say. Now, again, look at, look at Revelation if you're looking at it simply chronologically or trying to look at it in a linear way, the, most, the way most people today mistakenly try. Back in chapter 11, the nations raged and Christ won. Christ already won. That's back in uh, verse 17. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And now look, is the child reigning in number twelve in chapter twelve? No. No. So see, we've gone back in time already, back in time to the birth of Christ. So you can see definitively that this isn't just creativity about the timeline here. We've gone back now to the birth of Christ, and we're going to cycle through the same period of time. We have Revelation's Christmas, we have this dragon who is opposed to the woman and her son. And he stands ready uh, for the woman to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What's his first attempt at doing this? Can you think? The slaughter of the holy innocents. Yeah. I mean, immediately, Christ is born, and the devil sends Herod to slaughter the innocents, any, any male child under two. And then, of course, this continues until the death of Christ. But this is very, very interesting because here is not the place, here is not the place in the time for the cross and the atonement to be made explicit uh, in Revelation. She bore her child that he might devour, uh, yeah, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That's why he's standing there. She gave birth to a male child, one his, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. We've seen this repeatedly, uh, this symbolism in Revelation, uh, reference to the Psalms and to Christ's reign. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the description of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So he survives, he accomplishes his task, he's victorious over Satan, though none of this is explicit here, it becomes explicit later in the chapter. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has been placed, uh, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay. 
Well, we know for a fact that Mary in and of herself is in heaven. So this, in this sense, already you can see how the woman is Mary, but much more than Mary. And this woman now in the wilderness, suffering you know, the, the assaults of the devil, but being preserved by God for 1,260 days, what's that a picture of? That's the church. Now, that's how it looks right now. This 1,260 days should jog your memory because the last referent goes back to chapter 11, verse 3. There we're introduced to the 42 months. That's actually verse 2. And then the 1,260 days. Um, so you're going to have these three. You're going to have 42 months, which is 3.5 years, which is 1,260 days which is also a time, times, and half a time. So when Revelation refers to all of this, we're referring to the same period of time, to the same reality. In fact, I would argue that time isn't so much what matters here as we're talking about a thematic reality. Back in chapter 11, what's going on during this time of the 1,260 days? The outer courts of the temple are being trampled. The church of God is being spared in its inner courts, but it's being trampled on the outside. It's, being, it's under persecution. So when we return to 12 now, John has laid foundation, chapter 12, verse uh, 6. John has laid a foundation for us to understand this. Here is a different picture of the church suffering persecution for the 1,260 days. And yet in the middle of, of the devil chasing her, uh, which we're going to see explicitly, God is nourishing her. Nourishing her with his word, yes, and with his sacraments, most explicitly uh, the manna from above, the true bread of life, our Lord Jesus Christ and his supper. Okay, we will pick up and carry on with this chapter next week. The Lord be with you. And also with you.